When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Adam Coleman, and welcome back to the Cosmic Library. Today, we're thinking about the possible worlds into which Scheherazade directs us in The Thousand and One Nights. The nights are full of variety. They suggest so much possibility through different characters and different forms, through stories from different cultures. But the stories are also shaped by formulas, by familiar problems and patterns. So how does that work? How do you get possibility from monotony? Here's Hardy White, the radio performer, star of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU. He's spoken already about the transformative experience of hearing a story records adaptation of The Thousand and One Nights. Hardy is something of a philosophical maker of fictions and monologues, and he's thought a lot about fiction's imaginative capacities. You get to cast aside your concept of linear time and the consequences. So if I'm sitting, let's say I was sitting alone in my room as a kid without listening to the record, without the blanket over my head. Now I have to, you know, I'm thinking about like what comes next or somebody can come in the room or what do I do or all these things I have to think about, you know, do I need to do this? Those things absolutely disappear when I'm absorbed into another world. I'm almost not conscious of my surroundings. I mean, that's why movies, you know, we say, oh, I was, I was absorbed into that world or I was like lost or I went to the, you know, and it's really easy to do. If you've done it with like virtual reality, when there's one of those headsets on, you go, oh, I forgot, I thought I was in a different room altogether. It gets, uh, you get become a little disoriented. You know, once you shift away from having to predict the world you're in, your brain starts working differently. I asked the translator, Yasmin Seal, about the patterns and formulas in the nights. Formula is essential to the work. It draws its force from accumulation. It draws its meaning from pattern, which is another aspect that I think is unfamiliar within the Western literature tradition. There's a received idea that repetition is, is a problem to be eliminated. And I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment, what to do with pattern and repetition in the, in the work, because it is, it is so central. It's such a structural feature of the work. It would be absurd to try and eliminate it or avoid it. And I'm trying to think of this in terms of architecture or art, you know, patterns. Patterns are not a problem if they're beautiful to look at. I'm trying to think of pattern as having a literary value that is not simply saying something again, but every time you say something, it takes on a different kind of force and it inflects what has been said before. It's also a kind of spell, I think. What Shahrazad is doing is keeping the king captive in a kind of reversal of her own situation. She is, of course, in a sense, a prisoner of this bedchamber of the king she has married, but she is also keeping him captive in the lattice of stories that she is constructing. And formula and repetition, I think, are structural parts of that lattice. It is difficult to break the spell, 
there is endless variation within this repeated formula, which marks the end of every night, which is, and morning, gained on Shahrazad, and cut her speaking short, which is how each night ends. Here's Hardy White again, talking about the formulas and tendencies of the Three Stooges. And truly, there is a connection between the Three Stooges formulas and the repetitions of the Thousand and One Nights. I don't think I ever laughed out loud at the Three Stooges. I might have, but I don't, I've never seen anybody watch them. In fact, there's the Three Stooges. This is a funny gag. So Shemp is reading the funny papers, right? Yeah. And he's reading the funny papers and he reads them like this. <laughs> Which is great, right? Because yeah. people don't read the funny papers like that, really. They read them silently. So that alone is a brilliant uh, joke to me. And uh, but I don't remember like I think that one took place in like they're they're suddenly had um you know sometimes they're hobos and then other times they'll have a shop and so they're now they're all working suddenly they have a they're pressing pants and everything like that. I, I'm laughing as you're describing it, but I get what you're saying that you don't really laugh out loud when you read something or watch something, but you you you're making me laugh. But more often than not, there's there's certain like comics and uh, I mean the funny papers at least you know the the newspaper ones. Yeah, they aren't laugh out loud, but I remember being real into a lot of them as a as a kid. And that repetition has something to do with it too. It's 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 you don't need fresh characters, you know. Repetitious formulaic stories do something then. You felt it yourself, if not in the Three Stooges, then somewhere. It's like the things that we tell ourselves matter most about stories. Fast-moving, compelling, meaningful sequences of events with multi or at least two-layered characters caught in twists and turns and surprises. It's like those things might not really be why we go to stories. The Knights challenge all those cliched notions of stories, too, in so many ways, such as through their frequent inclusion of poetry. Here's Yasmin Seal. The Knights are studded with poems. The prose narrative is very frequently interrupted by moments of verse, which are sometimes real poems, sometimes poems that are otherwise lost to us, or poems by real poets who we otherwise don't know anything about, which have therefore been literally preserved in this text, which is another way in which this is a work about memory and transmission and recombination. These poems usually appear at moments of crisis or climax of some kind, or they are there to draw out the significance of a particular moment by showing its significance, its timelessness. Sometimes they're almost akin to proverbs. Sometimes I think of them as being like arias in an opera. They allow you to kind of linger on a moment of, of emotional climax. And the curious thing about them is that they've sometimes been left out by translators. I think because they interrupt the flow of the narrative. Sometimes they can be a bit cliched or a bit sort of impersonal, but of course it all depends on how they're translated. I think it's very important to keep them in because they are part of what makes this work so distinctive and such a hybrid thing. But they're also full of imagery, which might not be in the, in the prose itself. They can be witty, and they are also sometimes, they contain political insights and social criticism which we might not otherwise find in, in the prose. I thought I could read you one, one or two. This is a poem which is found in one of the very early stories called The Fisherman and the Jinn. 
and this is the song of a fisherman who has come out to fish and has not caught anything, and recites this poem to the heavens. Divers into danger and dark night, go slow. Reward is not in work. Have you not seen the fisherman who stalks his prize under a web of stars and wades in deep against the waves, eyes on the net, then home with the night's hole, a deadly hook inside the fish's cheek, and sells it to a man who spends the night asleep, safe from the cold, in clover. Glory to the Lord who blesses and withholds. One casts the line, the other eats the soul. How does that connect to the story that that surrounds it? It marks a kind of break in the story because what happens after this is that a djinn appears (laughs) and leads to all kinds of embedded narratives within the general frame tale of the fisherman. The song or the poem in a way acts as a kind of interlude, a way of lingering on what has just happened, which is that the fisherman has tried to cast his net three times and returned unsuccessful each time. So there are these little moments of ornamentation, if you like, that act as relief, I think, within the flow of the narrative. I could read you another poem, a song this time. There's a lot of music in the nights, so the poetry is sometimes song, and the the verb is sometimes, you know, he sang or she sang rather than he recited. So it also points to perhaps the context in which these works might have been read and performed. There would have been, you know, musical accompaniment. Some of these sections would have been sung. This is a broken-hearted song from the cycle of the porter and the three women of Baghdad. This song is sung by one of the women. You are what I crave and desire. Your company, eternal sun. Your absence, fire. You are my whole life's craze, the one thing in my mind. Love is no crime. The shirt of pain I wore lay bare the grief within. My wet cheeks aired the love I hid, secrets undone by telltale sobs. Cure me of this hard agony, you are its cause and remedy. Your healing hand inflames the hurt. Your bright eyes are the gold I hoard, your rosy cheeks assassins, your hair is my jail. The game is up, a martyrdom of love is mine. Death by sweet swords, how many fine souls meet the same sharp tender blade. I will not stop loving nor seek relief. Love is my law, my drug outside and in. Happy the eyes that looked at you and won a look returned. Now I am burning, lost. How does this this poem feed back into narrative? This poem is part of a cycle of stories which are all about mystery, mysterious language, mysterious sexuality, connected to women. It is a story about three women who live alone together, who are maybe sisters, maybe not, We meet them at the beginning of the story because a porter has followed one of these women home to carry her shopping and gets a glimpse of this life that they lead without men. And he's astonished that it's possible for them to live this good life they seem to be living without men. So the whole story is really a series of mysterious events that 
unfold and are eventually explained at the end when the women, the three women in turn, tell their own stories. But it's, I think, a good reflection of the nights as a whole because it is all to do with the magical power of language and a certain kind of unknowability connected to women and sex and language, which runs through the, the work as a whole. So we're confronted with a work about the magical power of language and of liberating mysterious story, but its stories come with formulas again, with patterns, as opposed to wildly free-flowing language. How does that convey imaginative power then? Let's go back to Hardy White. I think what it does is it frees you from the involuntary compulsive predicting that you have to do when you're navigating your life. Maybe because the same thing is happening all the time, you don't have to guess, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't have to figure out who Mo is or Larry or Curly. All, or I know their essence. You know, now we're just going through all the possible things that could happen to those familiar characters. So I think it's like freeing, you know, and people will like, they, they do it to like, oh, I want to watch TV and just chill out. And that chilling is like, is, and that not thinking, it's not that you're not thinking, it's what you're not thinking when you're watching that. I tend to think of really familiar stories as kind of mind numbing, but maybe that numbing has always made other things possible for me. I asked Katie Waldman about the rewards of endlessly remaking stories, of endless sequel production. I have been interested in what Marvel is doing just because it seems like a sort of cultural environment that is somewhat new and Marvel seems like a cultural force that is somewhat new in its monopolizing. I kind of appreciated WandaVision. I liked that it was a limited series. I liked the way it was engaging with what it means to be a TV sitcom through time. And I liked how it felt enclosed in a bubble in the same way that Wanda's fictional town is enclosed in a bubble within the larger universe. There's like a lot of cool meta commentary going on in that show. Never say that Marvel lacks self-awareness. It does sound like when these series work for you, one of the things that might work is a kind of self-awareness or exploratory self-awareness that maybe a series can especially generate that episodic storytelling can do like each each iteration also recalls that which came before it and shows that do that especially savvily or thoughtfully can open a lot more up than shows that just plot along is is self-awareness something that a series that works well for you is especially strong at yeah i think that's a really interesting question because of course you don't want to be the kind of glib, slick self-awareness sort of absolving you from engaging deeply with the things that you're kind of nodding at. But I do think that when a show knows what kind of show it is and can demonstrate over time, here I am, I'm this type of show, and now I am looking back and commenting on the fact that I am this type of show and that's easier to do the longer it goes on. Um, I think that can be really satisfying. It can open a conversation with the viewer because the perspective of the viewer is implied there. The show is very cannily anticipating the viewer's reaction and 
both shaping it and trying to subvert expectations that like you feel like the show is thinking about you, which is kind of a nice, intimate um, experience to have, especially in peak TV when there are so many shows and you can feel like you're just like lost in an ocean of content. But my sense is that a really good show that engages with infinity is actually asking things might end, things as we know them might end, the world might end, but something will persist. And what on earth will that look like? Um, and, and I find that like the books that I've been reading recently that sort of use that question to explore endlessness are the most interesting to me. This is a kind of story, repetitive and not, that seems set up by the Thousand and One Nights at least by the Thousand and One Nights, as described by Yasmin Seal. The Nights offers this model of a literature that is endless and boundless and spilling its covers, and that presents a kind of alternative model for a literature that is proliferative rather than linear, rather than the, the traditional model of the hero's quest, the story that is like a spear or like an arrow that moves towards its outcome or its destination. The Nights is very different from that. It's cyclical and full of stories embedded one inside the other. It's more like a, like a quilt than like a, a spear. Mazin now has talked me through how that proliferation emanates through cinema and its many Thousand and One Nights adaptations. One of the earliest ones, films about is actually in Hollywood, 1924. It's called The Thief of Baghdad. And actually that creates the trope of the lovable thief and scoundrel like Aladdin. And we can trace it all the way back to 1924. The director was Raoul Walsh. It was starring Douglas Fairbanks. Okay, this was a black and white film. And there were subsequent ones. You know, there's a, The Thief of Baghdad in 1940, produced by Alexander Korda, for instance. And then there's another Thief of Baghdad in 1978, directed by Clive Donner. The story changes quite a bit, but it's always about this lovable thief and scoundrel. And these are, you know, for instance, the films that paved the way for Aladdin to become Aladdin and Disney later on. So it's not new. There is a thousand and one Arabian Nights in 1959, a full-length animated feature, and it's starring the nearsighted Mr. Magoo. He is Aladdin's uncle there who's trying to get him married, but then Aladdin sees Princess Yasmin, and there he, it's, she's called Yasminda here in 1959, and falls in love with her. And then, you know, how is he going to get her? And there's the, the vizier who wants to marry Yasminda. So Aladdin was not new, Disney's Aladdin, in the sense that this story has been in the American cultural imaginary since 1924. So the Knights have kept propelling stories into our own age, even as within its print incarnations. The book, The Thousand and One Nights, propelled stories through cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Here's Yasmin Seal. It's a structure that's always resisting conclusion, unlike the kind of hero's quest narrative, which is driving towards a conclusion, an outcome. This is a model for literature and a structure that is constantly resisting finality and holding the king in a kind of epistemological suspense, preventing him from reaching a judgment and therefore acting on it. 
Stories from the Nights have been remade, but not always in a way that advances into the kind of possibilities suggested by the original stories. It's difficult to say anything general or definitive about the stories because they really contain everything and it's, and it's opposite. You know, the fact that there are so many stories that seem to suggest that women are not to be trusted. <laughs> Some people have suggested that that goes against the whole principle. It's a kind of inconsistency. You know, Shahrazad ought to be telling stories that teach the king that women are all right after all. But I think there's a way in which the stories kind of dramatize fears and fantasies and anxieties. There's a kind of pulp fiction quality to a lot of them. They're full of stereotypes. They're often garish and lurid. And this, I think, was one of the reasons why they were not really considered to be high literature until the 18th century and until they acquired this different kind of status through the European translations. There is something kind of crude about a lot of them. But I think that there's a way in which that might also be effective as a kind of pedagogical strategy, telling the king stories about men even more cartoonishly brutal than he is might prompt some kind of reflection. What stories lend themselves particularly well to, you know, oh, I can, I can almost pass this story on to someone else. I can, I can sort of tell someone what happened in this story in a lucid way. Oh, you know, I have the same problem, even as someone who has translated many of these stories and therefore read them more closely than anyone. I find that they're very difficult to hold in my head. And I sometimes, I, th I think that this is true of translators of other works too, that you're so close to the text. It's a kind of ant's eye view. <laughs> it can be difficult to, um, to stand back and, and see it as a story. I wondered if some stories in the Nights were more summarizable than others. Is the fiction introduced to the Nights by way of French translator Antoine Galland, for instance, easy to summarize or not? Yeah, it can be, though there are also all kinds of inconsistencies and continuity issues in the Galland stories. And it was um, a funny thing when I, I published a, my translation of Aladdin in 2018, which was copy edited and, you know, checked for precisely these kinds of issues by the, the copy editor at Norton, who found all kinds of problems with the narrative, basic continuity problems. And it was a very interesting thing working with him on this story, which has never been copy edited in, in 300 years, and which Galland sort of tossed off in three nights under pressure from his publishers, who were urging him to produce more stories to feed the demand he had created. It was strange to think that, you know, we were expending all of this care and thought to try and smooth over and make sense of something that had been cobbled in a hurry and were giving it so much more regard than its own author did. There's a parody or a reflection of the Shahrazad act of invention, which is in either case under pressure, underworldly pressure, stories are being invented in ways that might sometimes contradict themselves. Right. It's almost like stand up. You just have to keep going. You can't go back and polish or edit. So I think it's nice to keep some of that inconsistency, also because it's a kind of dream logic. You know, things don't completely add up because these are stories that are told at night and do some of the work of dreams. Adaptations of the nights in the US and the UK have often narrowed the scope of these stories, however. I asked Mazinaus if there are movie adaptations that avoid the cliches. There's only one that I know of, and that was a 2000. TV miniseries directed by Steve Barron. It's called The Arabian Nights. And it tries, you know, I mean, of course, it changes the stories, 
but it doesn't have, you know, it, it just kind of tries to, you know, so the Alibaba story, there, there's uh, Sin, uh, not Sinbad, there's uh, Aladdin, but it takes place properly like where it should. You know, for instance, Aladdin in the Arabic takes place in China. Here we have a Chinese actor and the whole thing takes place in China. So it tries to stay closer to the original and be a little bit more nuanced. I mean, needless to say, of course, there is all the fantastical elements that can play into, into kind of an Orientalist point of view, but it tries not to do so, so much. And of course, we have the Pasolini 1974 Knights who tried to kind of, you know, create art out of that, you know, Orientalist discourse, even though it still exists there, but it was also an attempt to create something beautiful visually and thematically in cinema, as opposed to, for instance, a 1965 Harem Scarum starring Elvis. Even Elvis <laughs> made uh, had a movie where he goes into a harem, and of course he's kind of the white savior figure there, and he sings a few songs and does a few dances, but even Elvis has something to do with the night. This brings to mind the basic problem of narrative that changes a thing, narrative that skews, or even more basically, it brings to mind the problem of language. So language is weird. The stuff that we think with causes some of our problems because as we make distinctions that aren't really there, we do, and we see language create paradoxes, right? That might not exist, you know, like the, the imprecision of the word heap or something. So it creates a paradox, right? But that paradox isn't real. The world outside of language doesn't care how many grains of rice are there or what their, what their shape is or anything like that. That's a product of trying to describe what you're seeing and getting it slightly wrong. We think, and we think of possibilities. Sometimes we're thinking of impossible worlds. We're thinking of things that never could happen because they already are happening or we're just getting the language wrong. You know, mm -hmm. that thought was clearer in my head than when I articulated it. But, uh, For all the problems and limits of our minds, of our, of our efforts to remake things, of our efforts to tell stories again and again and again, we're still tumbling into possibility. At least we are if we bear any influence from the Knights at all. And if we do, if the Knights really still is with us, the doors to infinity are never locked. I asked Katie Waldman what the literary history is behind an idea of fiction that intimates endlessness while also addressing those limits, the constraints, maybe the ultimate limit of mortality. I guess we're sort of talking about the afterlife, fiction that imagines that imagines an end and then somehow something that endures beyond that end. And there's been, you know, I guess you could go back to medieval dream visions, which kind of try to defy logic and present this different way of being that is sort of outside of our comprehension. And then I guess there's also sort of a, an absurdist tradition. I think we talked a little bit in our email exchange about Calvino and also magical realism, like Borges and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who, who do interesting things with the idea of infinity, not just how endless or how long it is, but how absurd it is as a concept. Like, if you think about it, it's just crazy. Um, and I think that there's some delight 
as well as horror taken in in the prospect of infinity. Is there room for for utopia in this otherwise kind of dystopian landscape? Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question too. For my original reaction is, oh, I think that's the realm of faith rather than literature. Or or I think it would be it would be a hard sell to set a novel in utopia without actually pulling the rug out from under the reader and exposing that it's not as utopian as one thinks. The stuff of faith could also be the stuff of the imagination, depending on how you define either of those things. It's sounding like we, all of us, in our musing, our contemplation, our repetitious telling and reading of stories, sounds like all of us impose fictions on the world, impose possible worlds that might not ever become actual. Right. And time does that because if you take time out of the equation, you squeeze things down to a photograph and you say all these possibilities never were possibilities. So if you say, oh, I can imagine a world where uh, Hillary Clinton was president. Well, maybe that is an impossibility in the same way as if you were looking at a picture of Hillary Clinton standing next to an elephant. And then you say, you look at this picture and you say, Hillary Clinton never was the elephant. And you go, well, no, there's distinct things that can't be the same thing, never could. So the possibility that you're imagining is wrong anyway, or all those things are going on subtly and you can't detect them. There aren't distinctions that you think there are. And you start to see this when you imagine things and you say, well, this is interesting because now my, my imagination is making all these things that seem impossible. But if they're impossible, how am I imagining them? That doesn't seem right either. How can I be more creative than God? I always, I always do like a, I always do like a Spinoza test on it. Like you know, how could I have more creative power than everything? What's the answer to that? Well, these things that I think are imaginary aren't, or I don't know. I've got the word imaginary all wrong. I mean, that could be too, this feeling that I'm separate from everything might be completely erroneous. So are, are we getting toward the modal realist argument, the idea that there's something real, there is something beyond just falsehood or fiction in the things we imagine? First of all, this is so far outside of my ken. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I don't know. I like, you know, about like, really like, if I, if I say the word necessity, I don't mean like philosoph like the, the word that people write philosophy books about because that stuff escapes me. I don't understand that. When I say something has to necessarily exist, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I do know that, um, hang on, I might've, okay, my thing froze up. Okay, right there, technology failed us. Uh, reality took over, but the result for our purposes here kind of works. It's a cliffhanger in the manner of Scheherazade and the Thousand and One Nights. You'll just have to listen to the next episode to hear the story's conclusion. Thank you for listening to the Cosmic Library. Guests this season include Katie Waldman, a critic at The New Yorker, Yasmin Seal, translator of The Thousand and One Nights, Jim Al-Khalili, theoretical physicist and author of The House of Wisdom, Mazin Naus, professor in the English department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Hardy White, host of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU. 